John writes this and says, look, look, what you need to understand about Jesus is that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Like he is it. He is the final. He is the only sacrifice that has ever been able to, 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 to really cancel the record of sin in our life. Because sin, what it does is it makes us wrong. It, it, it makes us wrong before God. It, 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 it messes up the relationship that was meant to be in place. Jesus comes in and he makes what is wrong right. You can't fully understand the impact of Jesus' death unless you understand why he died, why he had to die. And if you're living in a, in, in a world where like self-deception has crept in and you, you actually have justified your sins and you think that maybe you aren't that bad, you will struggle to understand the full impact of Jesus' death and what it means for you and why it was necessary for you and why if you were the only person on the face of the earth who had ever sinned, it would need, still be necessary for you. We just don't talk about this. And we gotta stare it dead in the face so that we can understand grace, so that we can understand what we have received, we can understand this beautiful gift that comes from God. If you know anything about history, specifically Greek mythology, uh, you know that Achilles uh, was the greatest warrior, right? In, in fact, if you know, um, know nothing about uh, history or nothing about Greek mythology or nothing about Achilles, uh, perhaps you know a little something about Brad Pitt, right, who uh, famously uh, played the character of Achilles in uh, the movie Troy back in the early 2000s. So if you don't know who Achilles was, as I talk about him here for a moment, uh, at least you can have in your mind the image of uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, famous American actor, you know, uh, as, as we talk about him here. So if you know nothing about Achilles, uh, what you really need to know uh, is that Achilles was invincible. Uh, he was indestructible, except for one weakness. It was his heel. And that's because, as legend has it, uh, when his mom was dipping him into the water that would give him his supernatural strength, she uh, held him by his foot and his heel didn't make it into the water. So what was incredible about Achilles is that, uh, man, you could strike him in his head, uh, you could strike him in his chest, his legs, his arms. The, the guy was, was invincible. Uh, you couldn't bring him down. Yet it's been told uh, that uh, during the Trojan War, Achilles was brought down by a single arrow shot to his heel, the one area where he was weak. The one area where he was weak. Today we use the term Achilles to refer to this small tendon that runs down the backside of our heel. How many of y'all know that if you happen to injure the Achilles, it can be downright devastating, right? <laughs> okay, okay, we got a couple. In fact, some of the most incredible athletes, you know, uh, our world has ever known who have experienced a traumatic Achilles injury uh, have, have never uh, been able to come all the way back to being the player that they were uh, ever again. Uh, they might be able to, to come back to their sport and, and play their sport again, but it's obvious to everyone who's watching that they're just not the same Something's missing, something's different. Their athleticism has been impacted. An example uh, of this would be back in 2013 when Kobe Bryant uh, famously ruptured his Achilles tendon. Some of you might remember this. It was, it was incredibly famous because Kobe at the time was at the top of his sport. He was one of the most feared athletes in the world. Ruptures his Achilles, takes you know, well over a year rehabbing this injury to, to finally come back. And when he does, uh, interestingly enough, he was able to do some pretty amazing things. He was still able to, to compete at a high level, yet everyone who was watching Kobe could tell that he wasn't the same player after the injury that he was before the injury. Another example happened in 2017 when Richard Sherman ruptured his Achilles, and uh, this uh, was when he was playing football at an all-pro level for the Seattle Seahawks. Ruptures his Achilles, takes well over a year to rehab this injury, comes back, and uh, gets finally onto the gridiron again, and it is obvious that he is a shell of his former self. He's just not the same player he once was. He ends up being released by the Seahawks, signs with, the, uh, with San Francisco, the rest is history. Perhaps one of the most famous uh, stories of, of an Achilles injury in the more recent years happened two years ago in the NBA Finals to Kevin Durant. Uh, and uh, this happened, uh, you know, Kevin was, a, was actually uh, injured at the time, uh, wasn't playing in the playoffs, and uh, they're playing for a championship, and his team, his coach, his doctors decided, let's give it a chance to, let's give us a chance to win and let's insert him into the game. Well, he ruptures his Achilles, 
doesn't play competitive basketball for, for over a year and a half, finally comes back in uh, late December, early January of this past year, and, and he's done some amazing things on the court, like just amazing things. Uh, but if you watch him, you know, some of you may, may be interested in basketball, some of you may not, probably aren't, but, uh, you know, if you watch him, his, his coaches, his, his, his uh, um, doctors, and things, they're, they're intentionally keeping him out on certain nights for, for what's called lo- uh, load management, trying to, 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 to prevent him from having this injury repeat itself all over again, and uh, in many ways, their, their, their hope is that, uh, is that Kevin Durant could be one of the first people, first players ever to, to make it all the way back to being just as good as he was uh, after the injury as he was before the injury, and I guess time will tell, right? So it's a big deal. You injure the Achilles, it's a, it's a huge deal. It's this small little tendon that runs down the backside of your heel, and yet you can have some of the most incredible athletes in the world. I mean, these guys are, and, and gals are, I mean, they're, they're essentially like superhuman in many ways, what they can do with their bodies, and, and this little, little tendon gets, gets ruptured, it gets affected, and it, and it brings them down. So we've also taken the term Achilles heel, uh, and we've used it in our culture to refer to not just a physical injury, but we've used it to you know, refer to a character trait or a vice that can be small in someone's life. And if they don't figure out how to deal with it, it can, it can lead to a massive problem. And so today we refer to, to, to the Achilles really as this, this small, this seemingly small yet very destructive sort of force in someone's life. Oftentimes people will say something to the effect of, you know, uh, that's just my Achilles heel, right? Or that's their Achilles heel. And what they're doing is they're using this phrase to really, uh, really communicate this thought that, you know, that's going to be the thing that brings me down. Or that's going to be the thing that brings them down. Did you know that in Scripture over and over again, uh, we are told what the Achilles heel really is in the Christian life? Your Achilles heel and mine. That if we don't get this thing under control, right, if we don't figure this thing out, it will be the thing that ultimately destroys us. I'm going to give you some scriptures here uh, to really uh, kind of highlight what this is and see if you can just sort of figure out what the Achilles heel is all on your own. I got faith in you. James chapter 1, uh, verses 14 through 15 says this. It says, But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, this, is, this scripture is, uh, you know, highlights kind of this exchange or this interaction that God has with Cain. Uh, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, catch this, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. You must master it. And so I, I kind of highlight this because really, in my opinion, uh, what's obvious in 1 John is that the primary reason for why John writes this letter, this, this circulating letter that would be read in multiple different churches all across Asia Minor, was, was for this purpose, to really address the Achilles heel uh, that, that was obvious in uh, the, the, the early church and that has continued to be obvious uh, in, in many believers uh, since. Uh, he writes this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. And this, I just want to kind of tee off here because he really highlights uh, this in, in a major way. He says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. So right there, he's, he's really summarizing uh, much of the reason why he's even writing this letter to begin with, why this, in, 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 you know, Pastor Josh mentioned last week, you know, in, in setting up the, the series that this is really a sermon that's being delivered, um, but, but it's a sermon that was to be read to the churches. And so he, he's really framing this up in a way uh, where we would understand that his entire motive and mission for writing this in the first place was so that these people would not sin, that they would stay away from it. Uh, and, and so sin has really always been the Achilles heel for those who are seeking to walk in the way of Jesus. And it seems to me like the Apostle John knows it here. He seems to understand it. So let, let, me, let me just kind of like back up for a second. So like some of you might be wondering, you know, the obvious question, like why are we talking about sin so much? And some of you might be wondering, you know, why is sin such a dominant theme in, in the Apostle John's writings? Why does he seem to bring up sin over and over and over again? Like, like is, is, is it really necessary for us to do this because we start to talk about this topic and like you know you can kind of feel the air leave the room you're like man like 
are we really doing this? Okay, and, and, and so I, I get that, but let, let me just kind of tell you why sin matters and why sin's important and why we don't want to, you know, avoid it, why we still want to kind of, kind of step into the tension of what sin is and, 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 you know, allow the Holy Spirit to sort of examine our lives. The reason is because you can't really understand the full impact of Jesus' death unless you really understand why he died. You can't understand the full impact of Jesus' death uh, unless you understand, you know, why he died, that he died for the sins of the world. And sometimes we view that in such an abstract manner. We think, okay, well, yeah, Jesus died. It's great. But you can't understand the full impact of Jesus' death unless you understand why he had to die for you, why he had to die for me. That it wasn't just like the sins of the world, but it was Jordan's sins. It was your sins. It was, it was very personal. And, and, and so the problem, just to be honest and kind of just set the table here, the problem is that we live in a culture that doesn't talk about sin. And I, and I, and I, think, I think oftentimes the church has just followed suit. You know, we, we're in a society, as a society, you know, we don't call sin a sin anymore. In fact, m- many ways, we, we, uh, instead, we, we, we trivialize it. You know, we uh, domesticate sin. We, we call sin something like, you know, a little white lie. That's all, that's all it is, just a little white lie. And, and, and in many ways, we use the term sin to refer to things that have nothing to do with sin. You know, like, man, that dessert is just absolutely sinful, right? I mean, it's, it has nothing to do with sin, and we use the term sin to refer to, refer to it. I, I, think, I think oftentimes we can, we can name our sins by other names really in an effort to kind of push them under the rug. So we'll take our sin and we'll, we'll call it a mistake. That's just a mistake. It was, it was an error. It was a my bad, you know? That's just like, like, like a... Uh, that's an addiction, or that's just some sort of disorder, you know, I, I'm working on. That's, 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 that's something I, I, I need to kind of figure out. That's sort of an inherited trait, you know. I got that from my dad or my granddad or whatever, you know. It's, it's it, yeah, that's a big deal, but, you know, I, I got it. Got it from my family tree, right? Sometimes we even, we even you know, try to reframe sin by, by calling it it's just a choice. It's just a matter of, of personal choice. That's just a matter of personal opinion. Right? It's, it's a matter of self-expression. It's just the way I was born. It's a lesser of two evils. You know? like, and when you frame it as a choice, you're like, well, that's, just, that's your opinion. That's, this, is, this is my opinion. We, we can kind of kind of redefine what, what, sin, what sin is. The list just goes on and on and on and on. And all of this to say that we very rarely ever actually call sin sin anymore. Like as a people. And it's true in the church. It's, 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 it for certain, it's true in... in uh, secular culture today. We very rarely ever call sin, sin. And so the reason why that, ma- that matters, the reason why that's important is because when we stop discussing sin, we're left with no standard, no paradigm, and no language for good and evil. We, 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 don't, we, don't, we don't know, is that, is, that, is that right? Is that wrong? Is that okay? Is that not okay? We're left with no language, no paradigm, no, no standard for for good and evil anymore. And so what I want you to see this morning as we continue on in, in 1 John is, it, it, like I mentioned last week, I don't want you just to see doctrine and theology here, as, as, and this, as, it's what this is. But I, want you, I don't want you to just see doctrine and theology. I don't want you to just see like, you know, uh, um, you know uh, an encouragement from the Apostle John or, or uh, Bible teaching of some sort. And like I mentioned last week, when, I, when you see these scriptures, what I want you to really first see is the Apostle John writing all of these things to you and to me, to, to these churches in Asia Minor at the end of his life when he's in his 80s? Right, as he's pastoring a group of churches. I want you to see the Apostle John after all that he has lived through, after all that he has walked through at the end of his life, after being, you know, boiled alive in hot oil. I want you to see the Apostle John, right? I want you to see him after he has been banished. Uh, to the island of Patmos after he's been persecuted in, in, in amazing ways, unbelievable ways, ways we couldn't even imagine. And I want you to see him as he's writing this letter. Very, it's a very pastoral letter. And, and just, just imagine in your mind that he's sitting down and, and, and he's, he's, just, he's, just, he's just pleading with these people who are being tempted to either walk away from their faith or to be deceived. He, he, he's sitting down and he's trying, trying to plead with them. And I want you to sort of catch that moment because what I, what I sort of set up last week was really my hope is that all summer long we, we could sort of have this mindset as we take this series in together uh, that we're just kind of gathering around the Apostle John at the end of his life. 
You know, like, like what, what if he could just kind of be here? What if he could set, sit down and just sort of start to share with us some of the things he's learned? Some of the things that matter most. Some of the things that like, hey, you don't want to go that way. Like, that's not going to take you where you want to go. And I really think that's what we get here. And, and this is a big deal. It's a big deal. I mean, think about it. He, he saw Jesus face to face. Right? I mean, he, John walked with Jesus. I mentioned last week that he was the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. He's there at the cross. You know, while Jesus is dying, Jesus looks at him from the cross, references him in that moment, speaks to him in that moment. I mean, I mean, of all the people, he's one of the few who knew Jesus well enough to know, uh, you know, what his values were. He knew Jesus' heart and life. And here he is in his 80s. He's writing this letter, and he's pastoring these churches and he begins to see deception coming into the church. He begins to see sin coming into the church. He begins to see massive issues starting to come into the church. He sees people being deceived, people being led astray. He sees people abandoning their faith. And he writes this letter out of this spirit of love, this place of compassion, this very pastoral place. He's writing out of the experiences that he had firsthand from his time spent with Jesus and he's writing these things to a church dealing with some of the same cultural circumstances that we're dealing with now in 2021. And so as we kind of gather around the Apostle John, don't you love that picture, by the way? Just like, just gathering around him as we read these scriptures together, just like, what is, what is the wisdom that he really has for us? I want us to take in what he has next to say, has to say next in this letter. 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 8. Uh, through uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to give you five verses today. We're going to look at these together and call it good. Uh, he says this. He says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's one of those massively famous scriptures, right? Verse 10, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Okay, we've already looked at this scripture. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, the reason why that, that, that last little phrase is so important is because he's, he's writing this to first century uh, you know, followers of Jesus who had a background in Judaism, who believed that the Messiah was the Jewish Messiah. And so John is writing saying, hey, like, like Jesus was the sacrifice for our sins, but not just ours, not just the sins of the Jewish people, but for the sins of the entire world. Uh, it's just, it's just uh, free for you um, uh, to take. So if you're taking notes, catch this thought. The root cause for almost every issue we face in life is sin. Because it creates a world that is less than God's ideal. It creates a world that is less than God's ideal. So, you know, the marriage that is struggling, perhaps. The dating relationship where you keep wondering, you know, what is wrong with this relationship? Why is it not working? The family issue that you're having where you see the tearing apart of family bonds. The insecurities that you face in life. The addictions, maybe, that you're dealing with. The work relationship where you can't seem to get along with a certain coworker, The money issues you have. That you can't seem to be content. Debt up to your eyeballs. You thought it was a spending issue. Like, I, I want to show you today, it's, it's really a sin issue. I think even the emotional issues that we deal with at times, you know? Things like the, our fears, you know, our, our angers that we have, anxieties that we deal with. Let me just repeat, the root cause for almost every issue we face in life is sin because it creates a world that is less than God's ideal. So everything, you know, that we're facing, that we're dealing with, like, that's not God's plan. That was not part of his original design and function for you and for this world. And so when, when we begin to deal with, like, like, issues and struggles in our lives and things, like, like, this is not a part of God's plan. This is the result of sin because sin creates a world that is less than God's ideal. So then the question is, like, what is God's ideal? What is God's ideal? Well, in the beginning, God spoke the world into existence, right? We believe that. He spoke the world into existence. And when he did that, he created a beautiful world that was true, that was righteous, noble, pure, 
It was loving. It was excellent. It was full of beauty. It was full of goodness. And this is the way the world ought to be. This is the way God designed the world to be, a place that all of us long to live in. And in addition, God created human beings, human beings that would bear his image to steward over this world, to cultivate it, to rule or have dominion over this perfect earth and to subdue it so that everyone and everything in it would give glory to God and live in perfect intimacy with him and with each other. Now, of course, our world doesn't look anything like this, does it? It's not full of beauty and peace and intimacy. And why? It's because of sin. It's because of sin. Sin is the reason for why our world is less than God's ideal. In fact, if you're taking notes, look at this. Sin is anything that is less than God's ideal. Anything that is less than God's ideal. Anything that is less than God's perfect plan. Sin refers to the corruption of our old self that is still present in us. You, you ever notice that? It's like, it's like you're still, you know, you've been walking with Jesus for X amount of years, but you still feel like there's some things that just, just haven't left you that continue to remain. You're like, what is going on? Sin is, is uh, really the, the corruption of our old self that still is in there, that still hasn't been fully sanctified and dealt with. And the reason why this is such a big deal is because because any action or thought that does not reflect the goodness of God or extend his goodness out into the world undermines who God is. And it undermines his perfect plans for the world. And so again, sin is anything that is less than God's ideal. Well, that's, I mean, that's a lot, right? I mean, we, I mean right? That, that could be just, that's just about anything, right? I mean, sin is, 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 it's rampant. It's everywhere. It's not just like the big you know, sins that we see on the five o'clock news or we see in the, in the headlines of the newspaper or whatever, you know, you're, you're reading online. And this is, this is why, because at its root, if you're taking notes, sin is a rebellion against God. It is a rebellion against God. It's a complete disordering of his world. It is a veering of, uh, off of his plan. It's a refusal on our part to image him and to worship him. It's a turning away from God to something else. It's a running after the longings of our fallen flesh instead of the longings of the Spirit. It's a big deal. And so sin, it, let, me just, let me just help you understand this. Okay, so it, it's rebellion against God. It is, it is a turning away from God and turning towards ourselves for fulfillment. Okay? That's why it's such a big deal. Was well, this like really a big deal or not? Is, 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 is like, I mean, that's just like so small. The reason why sin matters so much, right, is because it is a turning away from God and a turning towards ourselves for fulfillment. Now, let me just acknowledge the, the complexities to sin, right? Sin, pretty complex. Lots of different types. I mean, and, and, and really in our world, the way, the way you know, our uh, society is structured, we kind of rate and rank sin, you know? Like, well, this one's bigger than that one. This one's not that big a deal, you know? It didn't hurt anybody, you know, as long as nobody knows. It's like nobody gets hurt. Well, it's because we've allowed ourselves to, to forget the fact that sin at its core is just, it's a rebellion against God. It's me allowing something to exist inside of me that is actively rebelling against God. It's complex. And what I mean by that is, is that the Bible really frames sin like this, that it is, it is individual, but it's also corporate. So I have my individual sins. I have sins that, you know, I, you know, let me, let me I, I don't have time, but uh, to tell you all of them. Uh, but, you know, I've got mine, I've got mine, like you have yours, and, and sin is individual. Absolutely, but it's also corporate. The Bible really teaches that. It talks about like the sins of a nation or the sins of a family, you know, like generational type things. And so sin can be absolutely individual and personal, but there can also be, be corporate sins, you know, sins of a nation, sins of a, of, of a people group that, that uh, end up, you know, affecting many, many people as a result. Uh, the Bible also teaches, you know, in the New Testament that sin, Jesus talks about this in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, that sin uh, while it is, it is external, it's also very, very much internal. So, so Jesus talks about this, right, where, where he says, you know, it, it's, it's not enough to, you know, if you, if you just, like, go and, 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 you know, sleep with someone or have an affair with somebody. He says, like, if you, if you just have those thoughts in your heart, you've already committed sin, right? And so, so it, is, it is external for sure. There are external things we do that are sinful actions, 
But I just, I just love Jesus. He just frames it very clearly and says, like, it's, it's, it's also very internal. It's like, like nobody could get hurt. In fact, you could sin and nobody, nobody you know, knows about it. Nobody gets hurt. No, nobody is affected in any way. But, but, like, there is something in your heart that is actively rebelling against God. If you're taking notes, look at this with me. What was true in the garden with Adam and Eve and what is still true today is that rebellion against God unleashes into his perfectly created world death and destruction, pain and disunity, evil and sorrow, everything that is opposite of what God designed. What was true then is still true now. And so in this short book or sermon of 1 John, the Apostle John talks a lot about sin because sin is making its way deep into the church. It's affecting people. Uh, he's pleading with these early Christians to not fall into sin because it's going to lead to their spiritual ruin. And, and I, I mentioned last week, and I'm going to mention it again here, but, but you know, the primary issue that John is having to address is really this form of Gnosticism that was making its way into the church. I mean, look, look at this definition uh, that I shared with you last week. Uh, it's the false belief that the Spirit is the only thing that really matters. And our bodies are these sinful cages that we can't do anything about. The belief that the body is evil and wicked, therefore, if your spirit is right with God, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body because your body is sinful. So this, this is the heresy being accepted and adopted into the early church that John is writing against and telling them, I'm writing this to you so that you don't sin. And some of you, are, you know, he's saying, are convinced that like what you're doing is okay and it's not you think that as long as like, you're aligned spiritually with God and you have good theology, that that's all you need. He says, no, 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 no. You can't just go on and live and do whatever you want. You can't just fulfill and satisfy these, these desires that are within you that are actively rebelling against God. And so in this letter, John is fighting back against those who are seeking to harm those that he loves and those that he has called to pastor. So let's just break this down in chunks, okay, these five verses. Let's look at uh, these first three quick. Read them one more time. 1 John 1, 8 through 10, he writes and says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. The Apostle Paul writes something similar and much more succinct in Romans 3.23. He says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Everybody. Every single person. And so when we read these first three verses you know, in, here uh, that we're looking at today, John makes it very clear uh, that if we claim to not have sin, we've deceived ourselves. So he really brings up this idea of self-deception when it comes to sin. That, that, that you can actually be sinning and not think you are or have convinced yourself that you're not. And so the problem that's being dealt with here is not the issue of how we can deceive others about our own spiritual health by just keeping up appearances, which we do often, right? Come to church, put on the smile, raise the hand, have the Bible, whatever we got to, you know, we, we can deceive others about our own spiritual health by keeping up appearances. That's not what John's talking about here. He's talking about actually deceiving ourselves into believing that we're fine and we're not. Like, it's possible for a Christian to live in sin and yet convince himself that everything is fine in his relationship with God. I mean, a good example of this is like the Old Testament, King David, right? King David, you know, he commits this like major, massive sin with Bathsheba, and it just compounds, right? Where he ends up, ends up having like Bathsheba's husband murdered, you know? And I mean, it's just major stuff, and he's, he's trying to just, you know, uh, cover it up and cover it up. The Bible tells us like he went on and tried to continue in his royal duties, he went on and just tried to continue on as if he felt no condemnation. It wasn't until God like rejected him when the prophet Nathan showed up and, and began to describe to, to David, you know, uh, a man who had done something very similar. And David just re responds with like, like, kill him, you know. And, and, and the prophet Nathan says like, you're actually that, that man. You're the one. David finally has to repent. He has to recognize that there is something deep inside of him that is actively rebelling against God. Sin oftentimes becomes justified. It oftentimes becomes excused. It oftentimes is, is, is like a necessary evil. It's just a, it was just a necessary evil. I, had, I hated I had to do it, but I had, just had to do it. It was just a necessary evil. And oftentimes self-deception happens when we first begin to deceive others 
and before long we've become to, to believe our own lie. You know? And it's like, it's like I mentioned earlier, you know, we, we, we just don't talk about sin very often. We, 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 act, we, 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 you know, call our sins by other names. We say, well, this isn't really what that is. I don't like that word. That's just not a, a word that I'm very comfortable with. And so we, we call it these other things because we want to justify it and excuse it and act like it's fine. Look at this thought with me. Self-deception regarding sin creates disorientation and numbing And as a result, we misdiagnose our problems. We misdiagnose our problems. So like if we don't actually call sin sin, if we stop talking about it, if we we don't actually name it and say like, no, that, that that was sin, that was active rebellion in me against God's ideal for my life, what happens is we misdiagnose the issue. So we don't deal with, with these issues in our life as like spiritual issues. We don't deal with them as sin. We deal with them as, as other things. We, you know, uh, we medicate this or we medicate that or we, we, we you know, go and, and, and you know, just make excuses for this and say, you know, that's just, that was just, that was just a, a fluke moment. We don't deal with the fact that there are, there are things actively trying to make its way into our life and in some ways already has and they're present and they're active if we don't, we don't name sin, we don't call sin what it is, we, we, we're, you know, we're left to really fall victim to this, this idea here where, where we deceive ourselves into thinking we're fine and we're not. We prescribe the wrong antidotes for the sickness. And many times the issues that we're dealing with are sinful in nature and they just need to be handled as such. They need to be handled as such. And so you got somebody, you know, comes in and they're, Dealing with like, you know, debt up to their eyeballs and they're like, yeah, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how I got here. And it's like, all right, all right. I'm not trying to like, you know, make you feel awful. I'm not trying to like, you know, heap shame on you in any way. We'd never do that. But if you consider the fact that maybe there's something like broken inside of you, maybe there's something inside of you that's actively rebelling against God and we want to deal with that first. See, if you don't recognize what it is, you'll misdiagnose it. You'll misdiagnose it. Fleming Rutledge says this, an Episcopalian priest, he says, it's only by looking sin straight in the face that we are able to understand grace. Only by looking sin straight in the face that we are able to understand grace. So I mentioned before, like the reason why we got to talk about this, the reason why I'm I'm going to preach this message and then leave town, you know, (laughs) here in a couple days, uh, is is, is because you can't fully understand the impact of Jesus' death unless you understand why he died, why he had to die. And if you're living in a, in, in a world where like self-deception has crept in and you, you actually have justified your sins and you think that maybe you aren't that bad, like, like you know, that wasn't, it wasn't that big a deal, you will struggle to understand the full impact of Jesus' death and what it means for you and why it was necessary for you and why if you were the only person on the face of the earth who had ever sinned, it would need still be necessary for you. We just don't talk about this. We don't talk about it. And we got to stare it dead in the face so that we can understand grace, so that we can understand what we have received. We can understand this beautiful gift that comes from God. The next two verses here in 1 John the Apostle John writes this, he says, my dear children, right? You love the pastoral tone? Like, like I, just, I just sometimes need to get like some change up between him and the Apostle Paul, you know? Like, I mean, right, it, it, it's, like, it's like thunder and lightning between the two. I mean, he, like, like Paul sometimes is a little, he's a little tough and, and you get this different tone sometimes with John where he's just like very pastoral, very caring, very concerned. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but... If, anyone do, if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And then, he, then he says who he is. He says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The atoning sacrifice. And the reason why this matters and this language is significant and who he's writing to is because this was something that they knew. This was something that was, it was a, a regular active part of their faith system as, as Jews. Because once a year, there was a day where they would go and atone for their sins at the temple, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. You may be familiar with that name. 
They would have to travel to the temple. They would have to uh, sacrifice uh, uh, mostly pure, spotless, perfect you know, animal, the best they could find. And it would be slaughtered. The blood would be, would, would, would be spilled to atone for their sins for that previous year and start over with a clean slate. John writes this and says, look, look, what you need to understand about Jesus is that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Like, he is it. He is the final. He is the only sacrifice that has ever been able to, 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 to really cancel the record of sin in our life. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Well, to atone means to make what is wrong right again. I'm going to atone for that. I'm going to make what is now wrong. I'm going to make it right again. And that's what Jesus does. Because sin, what it does is it makes us wrong. It, 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 it makes us wrong before God. It, 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 it messes up the relationship that was meant to be in place. Jesus comes in and he makes what is wrong right. It's incredible. It's incredible. In fact, if you, if you want to see this, and this is just uh, a message that is fun for me to preach because it's just the gospel, by the way, right? Just the gospel. If you're taking notes, the only solution to sin is a brutal death. The only solution to sin is a brutal death. One of the questions that can come up uh, when the death of Jesus is discussed is, you know, why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Why such a brutal, bloody death? Why couldn't it just be quicker? You know, like Josh was talking about the machine guns this morning. Like, why couldn't we you know, just have something quick, just like over and done with? Why, why did it have to be such a brutal and bloody death? Why not something quicker? Why not something that could be like so much faster? Just get it over with. If, if, if the only thing that matters is that he just has to die, then why not just get it over with quick? But why, why so long? Why so many hours of agonizing and brutal torture? Why did it have to be this long, drawn-out process? Let me just give you my opinion. I think much of the reason, from my opinion, is, to, is really to show that sin doesn't just want to kill you, it wants to destroy you. I think a lot of the reason for why, you know, the, the, the death of Jesus is this long, drawn-out process, and the reason why, like, like it's just like you want to turn your head, you know, you, you're like, and, and, and like, I don't think I can take it or bear it anymore. It reveals to us that sin doesn't just want to kill you, it wants to destroy your life. And when you see what, G, what, what, what sin did to Jesus at the cross, the Bible tells us that, 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 that God, you know, put, put the sins of, of the world upon Jesus at the cross. Right? Jesus is the substitutionary atonement for our sins. So he is the substitute. He stands in our place. The sin of the world is put upon Jesus. And when you see what sin did to Jesus at the cross, it gives you an idea of what sin is trying to do to you. Because when you, when you actually recognize the fact that your sin is on Jesus and what your sin is trying to do to him, it gives you an idea of, 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 of what it's trying to do to you every single day, what, it, what, you know, what, what it's trying to accomplish, the kind of destruction that it is trying to bring to you and to me. So to, pro, to solve the problem of sin, solve the issue of sin, Jesus becomes the victim that is spit on, the one who's humiliated, the one who's abandoned, who's mocked, who's rejected. He becomes all of these things, the one who is stripped, who's beaten, who's tortured again and again and again and again. And why? Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we're healed. By his wounds we are healed. So Isaiah writes here, and remember this is prophetic, right? He's writing this 700 some years before Jesus would actually go and be the spotless lamb that would take away the sins of the world. Uh, he's writing this and he's telling us that, that this was put upon him, that, that, that Jesus took our sins physically into his body. So every time, every time we fall short of God's ideal, you know, every time we mock someone, Every time we abandon someone, yell at somebody in anger, hurt them physically, hurt them emotionally, every time we fall short of God's ideal, every time there is something in us that just shouldn't be there, every time we recognize there is, there is this active rebellion in me against God, it 
causes me to realize the fact that like Jesus had to bear that in his body. We have to recognize like Jesus had to physically bear that in his body because our, our sin demands this kind of a brutal death. And when you actually look at the cross and you look at the crucifixion scene, what it should do for the believer is it should cause us to sort of zoom out for a moment, understand the grace we've received, and make us come to a place where we are unable to just sweep our sins under the rug any longer. Call them something that they're not. Like, he did that? My sin created that? My sin caused that? Like, he did that for me? I love this scripture. I love the last, last words. It says, and by his wounds were healed. By his wounds were healed. And so G Jesus undergoes this type of brutal death so that his wounding could heal us. Sin requires a brutal death. The only solution is a brutal death. So we have to understand that sin is not something that we can just throw under the rug, something that we can hide. We can't pretend that our sins don't impact people or that they don't impact us, that they don't have real consequences in the world. We can't minimize it. We can't minimize it. And I think that most of us probably came to church today. I, I think most of us probably came to church today because we, we actually want to be followers of Jesus. Well, one of the first steps to following Jesus is understanding the depths of his suffering. Understanding the great lengths he went through to actually rescue us. You want, you want, you want to follow Jesus we have to understand like exactly what he went through to rescue us and why that was necessary. One of the first steps to following Jesus is understanding the depths of his suffering. And the way that we come to understand all that Jesus went through to rescue us is by understanding the devastating impact of sin. See, we've got to remember that before we were ever children of God, the Bible says in Ephesians that we were children of wrath. Children of wrath. Children deserving, deserving of God's punishment. That's why Jesus had to die. That's why Jesus had to suffer and die to pay for sin. And the reason why the message like this matters and the reason why, you know, it was necessary to, to, to bring this message today is, is, is this thought right here. Identifying sin is the first step to understanding the gravity of Jesus' sacrifice. Being able to actually identify it. Being able to call it what it is. Do you know how much more difficult that is to do now than maybe ever before? As you know, we live as a, society, as a society that doesn't call sin, sin anymore. That's just, that's just a personal opinion. That's just a personal choice. Like, that's just, that's just me doing me. That's Identifying sin, calling it out, naming it, knowing what it looks like in me is the first step to identifying the gravity of Jesus' sacrifice. You ever felt like there's been times in your life where you've like, taken advantage of the grace of God? I mean, right, I mean, we just, we just can kind of get away from, the, there's distance between us and, and like when we first experienced his grace, and we just live life and like, you kind of get to that point where you can kind of take advantage of the grace. You know, like Bonhoeffer calls it cheap grace, you know? Kind of view it as something that, that, that just we, we take advantage of, something we just, we just use freely and it doesn't actually transform or change how we walk and how we, we live. But when we begin to actually identify what really is sin, what is it? That it's this, this, this act of rebellion in me against God that he came to die for, that he came to, to lift out of my life and of, out of yours. It brings us to a place where we can begin to understand the gravity of the death of Jesus. Hear me, hear me right here. If I don't understand sin, the significance of it, and what it has done to me and my soul, then I don't understand the gospel. 
I don't understand it, if I don't think that it was, if I don't understand why it was necessary for me, if I don't understand what my sin looks like, if I don't understand what Jesus had to rescue me from, I don't understand the gospel. I don't understand the gospel because sin is what separates us from a holy God. And because of our inability, we, we have this inability to turn back to God on our own. It's not possible. So because of our inability to turn back to God on our own, Jesus needed to suffer on the cross for our sins. And by doing so, he took on himself all the pain we've inflicted on others through sin, and he took it on himself. All the pain others have inflicted on us through sin, he took it on himself. And through his brutal death on the cross, we can be healed. We can be healed. And so our whole goal this morning has been to really look sin squarely in the face. By looking at what the Bible says about it so that we're no longer desensitizing ourselves to it any longer. And as a result, we're not being led astray. Not being led astray like Paul says in Ephesians 2, by the ways of this world and by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We're not being led astray. Like these early Christians in 1 John that are being written to, you know, we're not being led astray. He's writing this to us so that we don't sin any longer, so that we don't just give in to our flesh, that we stop feeding our flesh, but we start to feed our spirit and the things of God in us. Hmm. Hmm. Would you just bow your heads with me for a moment? You know, my prayer for this message this week was just that you'd experience it in a very like pastoral tone, a very loving tone, similar to how John wrote his epistle. Because there's no motive in this message to beat anybody over the head and make you feel worse than you already do. But the motive is to just identify what's really broken inside of us. And what if God had the chance, what is it that he would touch? What is it that he would fix? What is it that he would heal in you and in me? And so I just have a few questions. As you're, as you're here this morning, you know, no one's, no one's around. No one's, no, one's, no one's watching. No one's around to watch. No one's keeping tabs. I wonder, like, where might sin be ignored? Like in your life, where do you think maybe sin is being ignored? What could be some of the ingrained patterns of sin in your life? Where, perhaps, is sin being celebrated? because we're actually not even calling it sin. We're celebrating it. And today, I think it'd be a miss today if I didn't ask you the question, how do you need to repent specifically? Do you need to ask someone for forgiveness? Are there areas in your life where you become addicted or enslaved? Is there something at work in your life that is actively rebelling against God's ideal for you? Where is sin being ignored? Where is it being celebrated? you're here today and you would just, uh, I mean, heads are bowed, eyes are closed in here today. If you just say, Pastor Jordan, there are some things. And I don't need to know what those are right now. I mean, you, this is a moment between you and God, but you would just acknowledge that there are some things that if God had his, had his way in your life, they would be gone. And today is a day where you're saying, like, I, I want these dealt with once and for all. I want these dealt with right now. 
Could I, just, could I just see your hand this morning? Could I just encourage you with some prayer? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I mean, literally everywhere, guys. Literally everywhere. In this room, everywhere. And Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask right now, Father, that you would, you would step into this room Holy Spirit, you would fill this place. You'd settle in this place right now. I thank you for the hope that you give us in moments like this, moments where we look sin straight in the face, that there is hope on the other side. And Lord, I pray for a supernatural breaking of every, every bond, every chain, every wall. God, every, every barrier in Jesus' name, I pray for something supernatural to happen. In the atmosphere right now, I pray for a breaking down of every lie-based thought, every lie-based pattern in Jesus' name. Anything that has set itself up against the power and the authority of the cross of Jesus, I pray that it would come tumbling down right now. I pray for freedom in Jesus' name. Freedom in Jesus' name. That he who the Son has set free is free. Lord, I pray for a supernatural ability right now to lay things down, to surrender things at the foot of the cross, to leave things here and not pick them up as we go today. And we just believe in faith that there are miracles happening in this room right now. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, chain being broken, walls being torn down. Right now, freedom coming to everyone who has felt captive by an area of sin in their life. Lord, I thank you that that is not your ideal. That is not your best for them. And then as we walk out of here, God, I pray for just a lighter load. I pray we'd walk out of here just feeling like, like this load has actually been lifted off of our backs as we start to walk in the freedom that your blood purchased for us on the cross. Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.